Welcome to episode 101 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast made up of mostly intelligent-ish individuals discussing our love and passion for everything Linux and open source. My name is Ryan, and with me today are three other pals that I have. Michael, how are you this week? I'm doing fantastic. I was hoping you would be like, I'm not your pal, friend, but you did not pick up on that little blurb I, I, there. I'm not that type of person, guy. Yeah. <laughs> and Zeb, how are you doing, sir? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good this week. Thank you very much. And of course, our good friend, Noah, who is almost on time. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I had a calculation error. Math is hard. Yeah, it happens that way. So, Michael, what have you been up to this week, sir? So, I've actually been doing a lot of prep work for various different podcasting utilities. I built some scripts and more scripts and stuff. But what's something that I did recently was I actually started to clean out my computer. So, when you do, like, uh, video reviews or you do, like, a news show or podcast, you, you try out some software. And... I forgot to remove the software that I didn't use. So yesterday I went through getting rid of all the applications that I didn't need. I found about 30 I didn't need. I decided to keep 10 of them just because to see if I might use it and then get rid of the other 20. So I cleaned out about two gigs worth of packages that I didn't need. So, oh, wow. So you have plenty of recording room now for this episode. That's tons, fantastic. Tons. It's totally yeah. not going to be ruined. <laughs> because we got a whole two gigabytes. So, right. I mean, were any of these apps that made it to your eh, maybe list, you going to give us a hint of some of the maybes there uh, that were on? Well, were left? Uh, yeah, there's actually a few things that I, I got rid of uh, that were interesting. Like um, there was some like GIF Curry was pretty cool. I got rid of it because I didn't really use it that much, but it's a cool... Gift Curry. You gift Curry to people no, it's, randomly? Or? It's called GIF Curry, and it's an okay, app GIF that Curry. converts video into GIFs. All right. Uh, like, it's kind of, it's kind of cool, but I didn't need it, and I was just I was just playing around with it because they had a release, and I was like, it was cool, and then, and then like overall, I don't use it, but it's a, it's a nice uh, concept. And I got rid of a, a few things that are like that where it was very cool, and I decided to... Um, you know, just try it out, but it's not worth keeping because I don't use it enough. However, there was one. You know how sh there's a screenshot tool called Shutter, and it's one of the most known screenshot tools because it has this editing mm -hmm. feature and stuff. I got rid of it because I found something way better. It's called FlameShot, and mm. it does everything that Shutter does and a lot easier, and the editor is built into the screen capture tool. Like the actual, like you don't go into an editing mode. You just edit directly on the screen capture while you're doing it. It's really very cool. cool. Nice. All right. And Noah, what have you been up to this week, my friend? I, uh, I, we actually built out, uh, we're remodeling our house. It's like a ongoing process. And, uh, we recently got to one of the rooms where I am, I'm kind of building out my lab, my layer, my yeah. area. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm incorporating all, all sorts of cool technologies. Just got all of the broadcasting stuff done so that I can do uh, remote broadcast. So I'm going to actually do the Ask Noah show from there. Um, on nice. Yeah, we're gonna do a live episode. It'll be cool to be able to do that right from my basement. Just be able to walk into a, to uh, to a room and, and do that. Of course, the entire thing running Linux. Oh, uh, yeah, naturally. We it's it's tied into the automation system in the house. So when the when the quote unquote when the, the studio goes live, it will automatically mute the speakers for all of the for the Raspberry Pi that's uh, running Volumio, that's playing wow. inside of the bedroom. And, uh, and yeah, so it, 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 it's, it's been pretty cool and being able to play with that technology. And then obviously I've kind of 
become a Rivendell fanboy. And I've just started using it to, to automate everything under the sun, like things that it wasn't even really designed to just because it's such a powerful piece of software. And uh, so that's sitting kind of at the heart of that room. But that's that's my Linux project for the last two weeks. Nice. Nice. And Zeb, what kind of trouble you've been getting into? Um, well, I think you'd be proud of me. I actually streamed a game other than ETS. I was uh, shocked. Week. Yep. So I had a quick go at um, Vikings Wolves of Midgard. Yeah. Now, if you look at it, it looks like I am the ultimate slayer and I am killing everything left. It's on do not hurt me mode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the lowest of, of the low. That's um, all right. So I've got up to the stage now where I just, just this big bad guy, some rock monster in a cave and I can't kill it. So I've actually got to go and read the manual which is shocking because I've no idea how to kill him, what armor to put on, whether I should be using my sword or my sledgehammer. I don't know. So, but that no, was good. It was enjoyable. So let me ask, we covered wolves of Midgard. I really like this game. I've played it with dark one, even online. Uh, it was so good. I was even going to play a game with dark one. If that tells you something about it, but what was your, <laughs> got him. I had to get that in there. So what were your thoughts on the game? Zeb? What, what, what would you give it here out of a uh, five stars? Maybe so far. Um, well, out of five stars, I would definitely give it a four straight off the bat. Nice. Because even a non-gamer like me can get, can get the hang of it pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and on this, no, no, do, not, do not hurt me mode, it only takes a couple of slashes of the sword and the wolf goes down or the rock monster dies or the, you know, the, the whatever. Um, the difficult thing is when you then start getting up to the bigger bad guys, you've got to start learning key combos. Yeah. Unless you've sat down and read the manual or you've worked out that halfway through the fight, drop the sword, pick up the sledgehammer because it's a rock. So maybe a sledgehammer is better than uh, a sword to try and battle your way through rocks. So it's all those little nuances. Um, but yeah, definitely a four stars out of five. And once I get used to it and maybe I can get it up onto the normal level, um, I'll be able to give it five out of five. But it's very easy on the eye. It doesn't make me feel queasy there's no weird movements yeah it's um, like diablo top down mm. fighter and you need to come join uh dark one and i as we play and i can carry both of you then through the game that sounds good to me <laughs> i like that and uh, i actually right. played that game too it's pretty cool uh yeah I, like, have to, I just i have to ask do any of you ever play uh, counter-strike global offensive yes not yes. very well but yes yep okay because I, I i want an invitation to that to that Oh heck thing. yeah, man! Yeah. We're totally, we're gonna get no yeah, energy. Hey, here's the thing: I don't game, but I game when it comes to uh, when it comes to Counter Strike. Okay, nice. I I so. game, not with Counter Strike. Yeah, I mean, so I, I play it. I'm not good, bad. but I would love to do uh, some rounds with you know. So we gotta set that up for sure. Mm -hmm. We could even make a charity stream out of it. Get Noah to play games. CS:GO. <laughs> Come on, it's worth it. <laughs> I game. donate to my I donate to my own charity. That's that was right. <laughs> All right, so what do we have in email this week, Michael? Oh, we got a, a really interesting uh, email from Will, and it starts out by saying, uh, been listening to the podcast for a while. I'm so glad that Noah has joined the crew. I uh, like the new vibe, and congrats to Zeb from, from coming over to Mozilla. I, I agree. Uh, I've been using it in full-time now myself for about a month, and I love the Facebook container stuff, as also agreed there. Mm-hmm. I uh, heard him ask about email clients, and I came back to my original favorite, Evolution. GNOME 3 uses parts of Evolution stack to have notifications, calendar sync, and all that stuff work with the shell. And it's just, he said, it's just as good as I thought, especially since I use aliases and the support is built right in for aliases. And he said, one question I'd like to, to, to get you guys to address is I use InPass as my password manager, 
and I have an Android phone, and I wanted to use Firefox Mobile, but InPass doesn't or currently doesn't work with with it because of some event handling thing that Firefox does. That but Chrome does do it. Can you guys look into this and maybe talk about it? Also, I love Ryan's hat. He the the hats he wears. Just wonder where he finds them. And yes, I've Googled for them. <laughs> I get this question a lot, interestingly, and I would love to be able to make a market out of it, but they're actually very expensive to make these hats. I have each one custom made, the gray one that you've seen before and this one, and they cost me like $32. So I couldn't sell them because it would be like $45 a hat uh, to make. But hey, if somebody's out there does a printing service, the Linux hats, man, I get asked a lot about getting a hold of these type of hats for them. So maybe we'll find a way to cut down the cost of creating them and get them out there. That'd be cool. Uh, but related to the question on the Firefox and NPass password manager, I know, Michael, you use Bitwarden. Mm-hmm. I use Bitwarden and LastPass together. I use the combination. Zeb, what do you use? I use Bitwarden both on the PC and on the phone. It's, it's not... For me, it's not as well integrated on the phone. It doesn't automatically fill in your passwords for you, but it's there and you can easily flip between the two and cut and paste. So yeah, it can actually it can autofill. You have to just it, like you have to pay attention to it when you you click on any. It works on the browser too. I've I've tried it a couple times on the browser and it works fine. It might not work every time, but I do use Firefox Mobile. Uh, if you click on the password field. And it will a uh, notification will pop up in your notification section. You can slide down and set, you, then it will let you choose to auto and auto infill there. Right. Okay. I'll keep an eye on that. See what happens. And Noah, which one do you use? I'm on Bitwarden. Bitwarden. Too. I, yeah. I, the thing is, I either I, either the MultiPass or Bitwarden or KeePass. I'm kind of in between. But the the one that has all of my passwords in it is Bitwarden. It's self-hosted, open source. It has a hosted component if you decide that you're too lazy to host it yourself, which I kind of like the idea of being able to pass it off to the cloud if I ever wanted to. Right. Uh, and it does so it does and it does two factor. So I have it synced with my YubiKey. So I can do everything that I could do on LastPass, except I can self-host it. So it's sitting on my box and not somebody else's computer. Nice. So not sure how to fix the end pass issue with it not working in Firefox Mobile, but maybe it sounds like try one of the other password managers, Bitwarden specifically, uh, and you may be good to go on there because I'm not sure why it's not integrated. Other than that, definitely bring it to their attention. You'd be surprised some of these companies and the support models that they have. You'll be surprised a lot of them how bad they are, but you may get surprised that, that, that they have good ones too. And I don't know about NPASS, so reach out to their support, let them know it's not working. Reach out to Firefox and see if they'll come up with a solution there. But we've brought it to the attention of the world for those who watch uh, and listen to Destination Linux. So if somebody out there works for either of those, maybe they'll look into it. And I also found it funny, he kind of gave a shout out signature there, Zeb, in his uh, closing line. He's, he's hunkered down on some gnome love there. Ubuntu mm-hmm. 18.10 user gnome shell forever exclamation mark there you go thank you will for your email well i suppose there had to be one gnome lover out there somewhere <laughs> <laughs> shots fired yeah so um on your emails uh you know i always um bang on about this and ask you to send them in but we're coming towards the end of the year so what we'd like to hear from you this time is um what distro and desktop environment do you think was the most innovative this year, 2018. So send us your top tips. Send us your, let's say, your, your top three. Um, or if that's just Good. too much, just send us your, your top one. I'll be fine. And then we'll, uh, we'll pick through them and uh, talk about them on the next show. Yeah, I think that would nice. be awesome to like find that. out about. 
So some interesting things going on in the news. We have Gparted has a new release. Now, Gparted has been a savior of mine for a long time. I guess it's one of those things where it's the first, you know, GUI-based partition management tool I used in Linux, and so I'm partial to it. I love it. I use it every time, no matter what desktop environment that I'm in. Uh, and they have a new stable release out there for their Gparted Live uh, bootable tool out there, which I did not know existed. Uh, I guess I just haven't needed it. But this is pretty cool. So apparently you could put this on a live USB drive. And this will allow you to create, delete, resize, move, check, disk recovery, copy partitions, follows over, everything along those lines utilizing this tool here. Uh, there was an interesting thing that happened in our Telegram this week where an individual had locked themselves out of their encryption on their drive. Their password wasn't working once they changed their desktop environment. It turns out that it just happened to be they were using the wrong password. But uh, they swore at first that they were using the right password, so we we're kind of going through some troubleshooting steps. And one of them was potentially I had seen uh, there were areas where if you changed your video card drivers that the GUI accepting the password for Nautilus in certain cases wasn't centered correctly and the text wasn't fully going in and caused issues like that. So I thought that's where we were at, but this could be an alternative to basically booting into this, manually mounting that partition and then decrypting it from here, couldn't it or no? You could do that way. It's, uh, most yeah. of the time people use it as kind of like a rescue option. So like if you couldn't mount the drive, you could mount it and get the, the files off of it that way. As long right. as the file the the drive is not corrupted and the files are not messed up, so like if it's or you just boot into recovery mode, which yeah. I think we recommended. But uh, so there's mm-hmm. so, certainly some interesting use cases here. It was updated to Linux kernel 4.18.20-2, so getting on the later kernel there, and some package updated packages and improvements, uh, adding support for copying and moving unsupported partition content add Minix file system support, recognize APFS, which is the Apple file system, and GTK2 code modernization. So Gparted, something I love, a tool I love. Uh, definitely go check it out on their live USB release if you need to do any special tasks like that. Yep, it's really good. I feel like between that and Clonezilla, like those are the two things that every system administrator has to have on their person 100% of the time. Yeah, like there absolutely. are a few tools. Well, that, oh, and system 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 rescue CD. Yeah, maybe even mm-hmm. uh, test disk and photorec. Well, test disk and photorec are on system rescue CD. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah, they come part of the suite. Yeah. So if you've got if you've got those three uh, if you've got those three flash drives, you're pretty much equipped to fix like any problem ever. Maybe you guys have seen. Maybe you haven't. There was a a, a meme on Reddit showing uh, a representation of different kinds of desktop and. Uh, environments based on the body types of different guys. And Gnome was showed, showed as this like big beer belly guy that <laughs> was kind of bloated and just right. And uh, turns out that, rep- uh, that representation may no longer be accurate or the Gnome team may be trying to change that. Daniel Van, is it Vought? Has shared a status recently about trying to tune and improve the performance of Gnome. The largest gains of performance are the Ubuntu dock performance, which will fix um, when GNOME runs, you start to bog down the CPU usage. You also end up eating a bunch of memory, and that's kind of the way that GNOME was set up or designed is that it runs all on a single thread. And so the problem is the more things that you run inside of the GNOME desktop environment, the heavier and, and the more uh, tasked that, that single thread process becomes. And eventually what happens is it just completely entirely crashes. Now, before Wayland, 
um, bef- inside of, well, you're still running on an X system. When it crashes, you don't really notice. The, you kind of see the screen pop. It kind of goes mm-hmm. away and comes back. Then you just pick up and carry on where you left off. And you're like, that was weird. On Wayland, it's much, much, much worse. When Gnome hits that limit on under Wayland, what happens is the entire display server crashes. And wow. you lose all your work. Mm-hmm. And I was in the middle of Not preparing great. for an episode of Ask Noah. And this happened to me wiped out my whole Sublime Text document. And if anybody that uses Sublime Text knows, for the most part, Sublime Text is, is kind of bulletproof. Mm-hmm. You don't have to save anything. You can just close it randomly. The, I've had the battery die in my laptop before. doesn't really affect anything. It's just, it's, oh, the text is still there. Not, not when, when, when GNOME 3 <laughs> crashes. When GNOME 3 crashes running on Wayland, believe me, it's a good time. So you wipe all of that out. And so it's good to see. That um, that there are people that are working with this. They are trying to uh, improve the the CPU regression caused by GNOME shell leaks, and um, they are uh, they're working on some of the um, some of these tweaks and improvements to kind of get away of that from that uh, from that bloat. So hopefully we will see some major improvements come. And I I think it's I think we're in a really good position, right? Because you have the two largest companies that are working on desktop Linux, and that is Canonical and Red Hat. And now both of them are centered around the exact same desktop environment, which means all of that collective brain power is going into one place. And uh, my wife actually put it pretty eloquently. I I asked her, I said, uh, you know, I've kind of switched over to KDE and that's, that's kind of where I'm running. And uh, she goes, I'm I'm not following you. I'm going to stick on, on no. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm the Linux geek in the family. I get to decide what desktop environment we're using, okay? She's like, no, listen, here's the thing. Canonical, I trust them to to the point that if when when by the time we get to Wayland where we're going to ship Wayland by default, we're gonna have this solved. And if that means we have to rewrite GNOME 3 from the ground up, so be it. If we have to retool everything to make it work, I'm sure Canonical and Red Hat can handle that. Red Hat has over eight hundred people on staff working on the desktop environment. I'm sure wow. I don't know exactly what Canonical has, but I'm sure they've got, you know a lot. Enough. Well, enough, yeah. yeah. Um Certainly nowhere near the, the 800, but they, but they've got a lot of people working, and so you you've got a, uh, you've got a bunch of people working on that on that on that desktop environment. So the chances that GNOME isn't going to succeed or come through or be able to fix some of the potential shortcomings that we have today, I'd say are, it's fairly unlikely. I think we're going to get there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now they had some memory leak issues in the past, as I recall. I remember the news hitting the headlines months ago, I think, but. Um, and and they got those patched and fixed. This one seems to be ones that they're going after proactive here as well with regards to fixing some of the memory leaks they're say, seeing in the Ubuntu dock and other things. And I didn't know all about the amount of members in Red Hat and things that are working on the desktop. So, I mean, that is a good reason there um, to believe that they're going to get a lot of this stuff fixed and get a lot of these these issues resolved it's interesting that that keeps coming around, though. May, is it that we don't hear it in other desktop environments because they're not as popular in GNOME? Um, or why is GNOME only the one that we hear about having all these memory leaks? You know, I have, I have asked a question numerous times of every developer that I've come across, and I've said, what were you guys thinking cramming this all into a single processing thread? I mean, I, I mean seriously, like not to be offensive or disrespectful or anything, like I appreciate what you're doing, but I mean, seriously, wasn't that a little short-sighted? And I... I, I'm not exactly. I've never really gotten a solid answer as to what the the rationale behind that was because you would think that it would be pretty obvious that wasn't a good idea, essentially. Mm-hmm. And you know, we were at a weird time. Unity kind of rebooted from the ground up. Plasma kind of rebooted from the ground up. 
or KDE rebooted from the ground up. Gnome kind of rebooted from the ground up. And so we we went like basically all at the same time simultaneously. At, by the way, one of the worst market times in the world for this to happen. All of the Linux desktop environments went to crap because they were all going to start over and nothing worked. <laughs> and then we were there for a couple of years. And now we've kind of slowly reapproached the point where they're all really, really great. Unity, right. even con- the continuation from what Canonical done, fantastic. Uh, KDE in Plasma, fantastic. Gnome, you know, absolutely fantastic. And then, of course, you have all of the, you know, the windowless managers. Um, but I've never gotten a good answer to that, Ryan. And it, it's yeah. it's somewhat frustrating um, yeah. that that that's where we're at. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very interesting. You know, Gnome, I, I've, I forced myself to use it for a while because when I got into Linux, I got addicted to XFCE really quickly. That was my desktop of choice. But I went into sure. Gnome mostly because Rocco, he was pushing it and saying he loved it. And I thought, all right, I'll give it a go. And it wasn't as bad as I had realized. And I actually enjoyed a lot of aspects of it. What I did see interesting kind of looking in retrospect was the amount of people that when I came into Linux for the first time, Unity was just about to leave us, but everybody hated Unity. It was like a right. universal thing. Oh, we hate Unity. All we the hate loud Unity. people hated Unity. No, that's what I mean. That's yeah, right. the, yeah, the, the, the voices. People, yeah. yeah. Not, uh, but you then know, Unity goes away and everybody's like, I want Unity back, which is funny, but now they hate Gnome, the loud people again, not everybody. They hate Gnome. So there's this thing that happens where if something gets too popular, we tend to latch on it and beat up on it and not that some of it's not warranted um but it seems like maybe it goes overboard the thread thing is a a fair point yeah to to a certain degree i feel like as linux users we're we're predisposed to root for the underdog right because our operating Mm. system is in fact the underdog so when you have a desktop environment that kind of takes off and goes you know bonkers then we tend to kind of retaliate against that but you know one other thing i want to add that you 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 kind of brought up you're talking about the doc specifically canonical has done fantastic work on the dock in GNOME. If you used Dash to Dock in GNOME prior to when it became the default desktop in Canonical, then you know what I'm talking about. It was a, it was frankly, it was a buggy piece of crap software, and Canonical took it from kind of this hack-on add-on to a core functionality of a desktop environment, and they did a fantastic mm-hmm. job and put all of the polish that you came to expect on Unity on that on that dock in gnome mm-hmm. and now it's basically an entirely separate product and it works fantastic yeah mm-hmm. and they actually contribute code from that dock back to the dash dock making that even better too so like there's right. there's a, a lot of stuff i mean i think that uh gnome will be good with ubuntu's implementation you know especially when it comes around with like 2004 i think it will be a solid uh offering there i just i, do, I don't think that like gnome itself is going to go to that route. I think they're they're more focused on like their specific uh, ideology and their ideals of what they want. Um, that even if there are certain things that would be more beneficial for them to do, if it's like uh, more you know if it doesn't if, uh, fit with their uh, their goals, it just won't happen. And I think that's one of the things that people don't like about GNOME. I think that there's a lot of people who are a negative to GNOME because GNOME just seems to uh, not really have any interest in what the community's opinion of their stuff is. Oh, absolutely. So, like, yeah. that, you, think- you talk, you talk, you talk to. Like, I don't want to get, I don't want to get too inside baseball, but suffice to say, numerous attempts have been made by numerous different organizations. Like, and I'm not talking like 
Bob Software Development in you know in in, in Tulupa, Kansas. I'm I, or Tulupa, wherever Tulupa is. I don't know. But, I love Baba Bob's hardware. <laughs> It's the best, right? They make the best code. But I'm talking about major, major, major software vendors have have approached the right. Gnome team and said, hey, here's a massive problem. We just spent, we'll take and take all of our developers and spend thousands and thousands of dollars to fix this problem. And Gnome went, meh, not really interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the default desktop environment, I, I think this would be an interesting question if you are brave enough to, to answer it. Should be plasma. Be what i agree plasma i agree it should be plasma too it should be plasma but it should be modified plasma it should be not the default plasma there's problems there it should be like take plasma uh polish up the 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 issues of the defaults and then you'd have a great modern uh default desktop especially like when i made the video when they announced that they were going to switch to to gnome uh, getting rid of Unity, I I was one of the first people who just said, "Stop getting, don't get rid of Unity. It's actually quite good. Here's an opportunity. To, here's a method that you could get rid. Of, you could right. technically get rid of Unity, but still keep it because you could turn Plasma into a Unity uh, structure. Like experience, very, right? Yeah, very quickly. Like ninety percent of Plasma can already do what they already they did in in Unity. They even had the HUD system already available in Plasma <clears throat> prior to the HUD existing in Unity. So like you could do a lot of things in Plasma that Unity had. So they could have they could have just transitioned there and still had a Unity experience and a Unity approach and everything. So like well, the idea was if Ubuntu were to take Plasma and then polish it up, they could make an amazing desktop environment. I think Plasma itself is a fantastic, uh, amazing fundamental core structure, but the default offerings uh, need a little work. And I yeah. think Ubuntu putting those together together would have been amazing. That could have been fantastic. I agree. Yep. So talking about amazing, there is. Um, <laughs> nice. Look at them light up. Nice. Yeah, a, a, another distro um, that we need to talk about this week, um, and I do want to say right out of the bat, I am a very proud member of Team Peppermint. So this is not going to be a biased review in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> purely reporting the facts. Um, so Team Peppermint are pleased to announce that the Peppermint 9 Respin, Michael, um, has been released. Uh, the latest iteration of our operating system, still based on the 1804 LTS long-term support code base, um, Peppermint 9 Respin still comes both 64-bit and 32-bit flavors so that the older hardware is still supported. Now, there is a huge long list of about 16 changes, so we're not going to go into them all. Um, but there's one in particular that I find really strange that seems to be causing people a lot of concern. Now, that is that we no longer ship with VLC. We've gone over to one of the Mint um, X applications called XPlayer. Hmm. Now, before we get into a big, long discussion about why it is or isn't the greatest, if you want VLC, sudo apt install VLC. Next. It's too hard. What <laughs> is the big fuss about i just don't get it when people do a review of a distribution and they're all over the default applications if you don't like them change them may, that... I, play devil's, may I play devil's advocate for you with you with the first second yeah, yeah. so if you th if we think about what a distribution is a distribution is a collection of base operating system a desktop environment and default applications so mm -hmm. i would say that any review of any given 
uh, distro is going to be a review of what desktop did they choose, what base did they choose, and what, what default applications they chose, right? Mm-hmm. So, like yeah. the difference between KDE Neon and 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 the you know a regular Kubuntu, essentially, uh, other than a slightly different version of KDE, essentially comes down to the fact that with KDE Neon, you don't get any default applications; you get whatever comes with the KDE desktop, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you get vanilla Plasma, uh, which, like I said earlier, you don't want. Yeah. <laughs> To a certain degree, that's also um, what Peppermint do, because I think VLC is probably one of the only actual applications that that comes installed. Um, Everything else is based upon the ICE application. And and really, that's simply because who are we to say what application you are going to use with your your distro? So we give you just enough to get going, and then the decision is yours – as to what you're going to do, what Office suite sure. you're going to use, what browser you're going to use, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so- if it makes you feel any better, I was happy to see it. I, VLC and me have a bad, we have a falling out right now. I used to love VLC. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, recently, listen, I have a computer that most kids would probably take a picture of and hang up as a poster on their wall and dream about having power-wise. And when I have a video stuttering to play in VLC, but I can open SM Player, everything else, and it runs smooth as silk, there's something wrong there. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and I know not everybody has the same experience because they have different hardware, but I've just not had a great experience with VLC as of late. Mm-hmm. I think VLC is, isn't actually a problem because uh, I think it being by default being removed is actually kind of good in a devil's advocate method of saying that VLC, while being the most known media player and video player, pretty much ever, uh, especially for like Windows users and even Android users, it's one of the best for Android. It's not that good for Linux, and I don't know why, but it's Mm -hmm. it's not. But when someone, like, people use VLC for the default because they, it's known, and the users would go, oh, okay, VLC, I get, I know that one. And that's in a way that's good, but when they use it on Linux and it doesn't actually perform at what they expect it to be and it's weird and and like buggy and sometimes does artifacts and stuff like that, that could be a negative saying, oh, look at this Linux thing. It can't even run VLC right. But it- So mm-hmm. in, in, in defense of my beloved traffic cone, the uh, oftentimes what I found is you can fix almost all of the problems of VLC just by making a couple little configuration changes, going in and changing the video rendering engine and stuff like that. Now, I'm not saying that's an excuse that, v- that, sure. that excuses the fact that VLC just doesn't work out of the box. It should, absolutely. But uh, I, I use VLC exclusively, and uh, I know what you're talking about, the little green artifacts or whatever mm-hmm. where the entire video turns weird or whatever. And yeah. I've been able to fix all of those just by changing some, some software settings. Not I fixed it, too. To I fixed it, too. I use MPV, and I don't have to do that. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's, there's just three other items that I'd like to mention out of the list of things that came in because um, we, we, we decided a, a few shows back to be a bit of an advocate for – um, accessibility settings, making sure that when we do our reviews, we have a look and are we catering for those people um, who have, you know, sort of some some sort of difficulty using your basic computer. So um, Peppermint have, have made that a bit easier by adding the accessibility settings utility to the Peppermint settings panel. Um, and one of the things when I looked through it was it was quite interesting because I hadn't thought about it before because we're all just here doing our stuff. But some people will sometimes have difficulty move moving and pinpointing the accuracy of the mouse. Mm-hmm. So there's a little setting you click on it, and then if you've got a number keypad, a number keypad on your um, keyboard, you can then use those nine points 
to start moving the mouse cursor. That's pretty cool. Screen. And I found that I found that quite interesting. That's obviously a standard facility that comes with these accessibility settings. But until you actually dive in and you look at these things and you say, well, why have they got that? But you begin to realize that we do take advantage of our good health. Um, and it, I thought it was just nice to see that we're making well, that it- a bit more obvious for these people yeah that and it reminds me of the email we got where we have individuals who listen to the show and are looking when we do these reviews to talk about the accessibility stuff so appreciate you Mm -hmm. pointing that out yep um and then another another one which i thought was good because we always hear about questions about how can i get my wi-fi drivers working what's the matter with this you know and i forget the name of the company now that causes people the most grief um but we've added a lot of those wireless drivers broadcom (laughs) <laughs> Broadcom, that's the guy. So we've added a lot of those drivers now out of the box. Now, I don't know which Broadcom versions are covered, but there's a, there's an awful lot of them. Um, and then the security conscious will be happy to see that we've added support for mounting Lux encrypted volumes. Mm. Um, so that's quite good. But generically, it's just all up to date. It includes the uh, latest versions of Mint install, the kernel, and Firefox, which is still our default browser. So... All in all, not a massive change, but nice little tweaks if you read through that list that just makes your Linux life that little bit easier. So do you like it, Zeb, or you hate it? No, I think it's uh, <laughs> probably my number one, my number one choice. <laughs> now, before we do move on, um, there's something I wanted to address that might be somewhat confusing to people, and that's the fact that it has quite a long version um, number. Um, I think it's like Peppermint OS 9-20181222. Now, there was a YouTuber that seemed to find this quite amusing when he was reading it out. He just thought it was a really weird, obscure number. So I thought I'd explain to you as quick as possible what that number relates to. It's the date. 2018-12-22. So... I'll let you decide how much of a face palm you want to give yourself. But for me, that, <laughs> that, that just warrants a hearty dolt. I mean, I fell into this trap. Not that I ever gave it any thought. I never got, it gave it any thought about it being long or not. But I, I didn't realize that's how they did their naming convention. It almost reads like an old Star Trek captain's log. <laughs> captain's log, 2018-12.22. Aliens seem to be invading. That's kind of what it is. It's long. I mean, you got to admit it's long. It's longer than most people version numbers. It it is long. But moving swiftly on. (laughs) Exactly. Michael, save us. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of uh, having Firefox's default, uh, that's a great option, especially when you have Firefox 64 been released, and it's available now on pretty much every major distro, more than likely all of them. Um, and there is a ton of really cool features that are being uh, done in for this one. Like, it's not as big as like the Quantum release, but each each new version of Firefox is still adding a lot of nice things that I I enjoy. Like the ability to easily uh, in like they enhance the tab management structure, where you can have like you can select tabs like uh, doing a control and then click on a tab and it will select an individual tab. And it used to be really annoying that I wanted to. Like, for example, move a tab off into another window. You'd have to do one by one and then move it to the next window, move it to the next window. Now you can just click each one, like highlight each one you want to move and then move them all at the same time. You can do the same thing with uh, bookmarking. So if you have like, if you use the bookmark sidebar, you can select them and then move them all into the, the folder that you want to do. And mm-hmm. like, I, it seems like it's not that big of a deal, but if you do it, like if you, 
if you're ridiculous like I am and you have like 1,500 bookmarks, uh, it, it turns out to be quite useful to, to be able to do that. Uh, even if it is like a, a little tiny improvement, I think it's it's fantastic. So what, what do y'all guys think? Yeah, well, it makes it that much more usable. And sometimes it's just, we don't want these massive, fantastic new features. Just think about what we've got. How do you use it? And what little tweaks can we put in to make it that little bit easier for you? And that's just a brilliant example of, let's not put a fantastic new feature in. Let's just tidy up and work on what we've got and make it make it more user friendly. So yeah. yeah, no, I think that's a really good. And I don't have that many bookmarks, but yeah, it's very very handy to be able to do that. Actually, I mean, Fire, Firefox is just killing it uh, recently. It almost reminds Firefox and AMD are kind of on the same path, where there for a while they were both have struggling pretty heavily, and recently they're just dominating. And Firefox reminds me, the difference between Firefox and Chrome nowadays is it's these companies, you know, when companies get too big, they lose their roots and it seems like they don't use their own products. The people working on Firefox, you can tell, do this. They're they're fixing the things, the little uh, tweaks and enhancements and things that of somebody who utilizes this every single day. Oh, they get their own documents for sure, yeah. Yeah, versus I think something like Chrome where it's like, you know, you got so many levels of management dictating what to work on and when to work on it that it you lose that user that you they lose the roots. Yeah, the container tabs things. They, yeah. I agree that they, they, the container tab system was just because a, a, like four or five people had the idea and wanted to build it. And then after they built it, they it like allowed people to users to just play with it and see if they liked it. And then everybody loved it. So then it became a part of like the main add-ons that Mozilla creates. So like the they if they see a problem that they want to address or they see something they want to add as a feature, they are like they're they're passionate about it to the point where they want to cre- go out and create something to allow everybody to enjoy and benefit from. And that's one of the things like the container tab system is, is makes I think it that one add-on makes Firefox a better It's browser. one of the single greatest features added to a browser period uh, out there. There's nothing else like it. Um, And it it was an ingenious move. I just released a video about security on my channel for the everyday users out there. And of course, one of the things that I talk about is containers because not only Mm. is it useful, but what I was trying to do is create a video that anybody at any tech level could figure out how to start thinking about privacy and security. And it was so easy to demonstrate how to use it. Yeah. Right. It's not overly complex. It's not confusing. You don't have to be a coder. It's a couple clicks and you're done. It's so mm-hmm. brilliantly implemented. They also made uh, it with a plugin system too. So you can modify the existing add-on to add extra features. So if you are a power user, you can even make it more enhanced. So like, for example, I have, you, you can create uh, specific shortcuts to open a tab in a particular container. Uh, but that takes another add-on to do that. And uh, the, the like, once you do it, it, it changes the workflow of the container tab system even better. So like overall, container tab system is fantastic. And then especially like the Facebook container and all those things like the security structures that Mozilla is working on, like those are fantastic. And I think it's a great, uh, it's, it's definitely one of those pieces that should be included in a video like that. So well, I just I mean, have to ask, oh, go ahead. No, sir. No, I'm just going to say their timing is absolutely fantastic because right now the world is kind of shifting the Chrome direction, right? Mm-hmm. You've got Microsoft d- jumping in on that. So if ever there was a time where we needed a standout, amazing browser that was going to do a really good job and was true to their roots, like 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 Mozilla, today is that day. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well said. 
And I'm really glad you put that video out, um, uh, Ryan, because um, I'm going to be going through that like you know, with a fine tooth comb. So if this dumb Linux user can understand it, then yeah, it's going to be it's going to be great to be able to just add those little bits of tweaks to make your life online that little bit safer. Absolutely. I thought you meant you were going to audit his video. That would be funny, too. It'd be like, he made a mistake at 2 minutes, 33 seconds. He should make a series. Zeb reacts to Ryan. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's a shame that um, our friends over at Chromium um, didn't do this because there is an SQL light bug that impacts all Chromium-based browsers. Um, And what was interesting that when I was reading through this article is that although Firefox has this same vulnerability you've actually physically got to be sitting at the machine to be able to, um, you know, use this bug. Whereas with uh, Chromium, um, ev- everything is, uh, is up for grabs. So the, um, the Tencent Blade security team it allegedly says that it allows an attacker to run malicious code on the victim's computer. Now, again, like all of these things, this is another one of those, well, has it ever happened to anybody? Mm-hmm. But I think that isn't the point anymore. And I'm slowly coming around to your guys' ways of thinking. Just because it's there makes it vulnerable. Whether or yep. not someone's going to use it is neither here nor there. And if we look back over the past, all of the sort of bugs that have been there um, with the potential for them being used, I think you're right, Ryan, it's pretty obvious and we may be making a wrong blanket statement here, but it's pretty obvious that, that some of the developers over there maybe don't use their own product because why yeah. are they not, why are they not spotting this sort of sort, sort of stuff? Now I'm not a security expert, so I'll leave it to one of you guys to go into the real details. But it just seems shocking that month after month, you know, quarter after quarter, all of these new things are being found in in Google's code. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Google does this stuff like this is a, a a thing that happens often with their browser because of the whole the, the the hierarchy structure they have. But this particular bug is not necessarily their issue. This is a SQLite issue where the database uh, project SQLite they provide like basically the, the 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 way that all databases other than SQLite work is that you have a database software, you put it on a web server, and then you take software and connect it to that database. Whereas SQLite mm-hmm. is like a self-contained single file database where everything is com- like can be attached to a thing where you don't need to have a database structure or, or a web server built in. Uh, so it's it's a good idea and it allows a lot of applications to exist. One of the things would be Chrome. Um, Firefox does use it, but they don't implement the API in a way that makes the bug as bad as it can be. Because uh, it can't be executed remotely, basically. Right. And uh, the SQLite bug actually impacts uh, like a ton of like all of Chrome for sure and everything based on Chrome, but also like thousands of other applications. Like it's, it's, it's heavily used and people argue that it's, uh, it's used too much because it's becoming a crutch. And with something mm-hmm. like this happening, it creates uh, a, another, another point for those people who are, you know, detractors to it. But I think it's, it's interesting because, um, this is another example of, um, a l- big corporations using a project that's open source and provides a lot of s- a service or a lot of benefits to them without ever auditing the code or contributing back to the code to actually see if they can contribute and help based on what they you know depend on. And that's mm-hmm. a very common thing when it comes to like you know big corporations using open source. They like the idea of open source, but they don't want to really contribute to it. Mm-hmm. Well, but it was good to see that it's already been fixed. 
Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, allegedly, Chromium has patched this, and SQLite has released a patch. Of course, there was some articles that I was reading talking about getting all of these people to change their code in the apps that already exist on the app stores, which can be a pain in the butt to pull your app down and update it and all of those things to get them to realize that they need to patch this is going to be an issue. So while there are patches available, meaning there's a fix available, that doesn't mean the software you're using right. <laughs> utilizing right. is patched with it. So that creates kind of an interesting issue. Now, I, w I do want to point out that uh, the folks at SQLite are saying that, you know, Tencent Blade security team is basically kind of spinning or exaggerating how big of an issue this is. Um, they're saying it's not as big or not as much of a vulnerability as they were making it out to be. Um, obviously, uh, unless you're somebody going in there and probably working on it, who knows uh, how big it can be. But let's put it this way. It was big enough that they both released a patch. So there's something mm -hmm. there uh, that certainly creates a vulnerability. And it's interesting the impact it has on Chromium-based browsers. And that's not to say that something like this can't come along and impact Firefox or something down the road as well. But you're right. Zeb, and I think part of this has to be with the market share being so unfairly balanced here, but Chrome seems to come up constantly in the news mm -hmm. lately. So on top of all of that, let's look at some good news here, like VirtualBox 6.0 is released. Now, VirtualBox is a very powerful tool that can be utilized for many different applications. Most people, like myself, probably got used to using VirtualBox to, you know, boot up an ISO and give a different distro kind of a quick look about um, in, in case you wanted to distro hop to it or just check out some of the new features it has. But of course, you can do many other things with it than just that. This is a major update for them that they have released. They've implemented support for exporting a virtual machine to Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. They've done lots of user interface improvements, including their high DPI and scaling output, uh, which I understand was definitely something that was really needed. Uh, better detection and per-machine configuration, major work, rework of the user interfacing, uh, kind of across the board, so making things much easier. Um, they added in support for Hyper-V as the fallback execution core for Windows hosts, uh, plus lots and lots of bug fixes here. Mm -hmm. Now, Michael, when we were doing an episode before, I think we were talking about a distro, and I said, yeah, I booted up a virtual box, I put up the distro, and I got some comments of individuals saying, why do you use VirtualBox? You can create a virtual machine right through Linux or other tools that are better for it. So do you use VirtualBox? Is that your thing? I do use VirtualBox in certain ways. Uh, there's there's very good benefits to a variety of the, all the different options. I think uh, Boxes mm -hmm. is good from the GNOME team because it's really simple to set up. I like Boxes, yeah. Yeah, but it's not it's not very featureful. It's just, it's no. just an easy it's to get started kind of thing. But once you get... I don't know, you get started at all. It's you, you'll, you'll hit uh, barriers really quickly. Whereas things like QEMU, which is or KVM even, well, they're fantastic. And you have to, uh, and they have like great performance and they're super fast and they're reliable, but they're also, they also require a lot of setup time and you have to learn how like vert manager works or libvertd and things like that. So it takes a lot more effort to get those set up than it is to use VirtualBox. So VirtualBox is the nice combination of being very featureful, being very powerful, but also being fairly easy to use. So that's why I say, uh, I usually typically suggest to people if they want to try out virtual machines that VirtualBox is the best option to get started with because it has a ton mm -hmm. of great features that even um, some 
thing. People don't even think about like the ability to do host-only networking is one of the things I love about the the fact that VirtualBox has it because that comes in handy, ridiculous, where your host and your guest are connected to each other and they can share their network and files, but the ho- the guest doesn't have access to the internet. So it it and as an extra layer of security on that sense, so you don't have to worry. Like if you're using a Windows guest, you don't have to worry about Windows being attacked inside of the the virtual machine because it's only right. access to the the host itself. And that's a cool feature that VirtualBox has. And I think that it's because it has something like that. That's that that is a power user setup. I think that it's a great example for getting started and then learning virtual machines, and then maybe going to something like LibVirtD and Virt Manager. You know, the, the other thing I'll add to that is what I found when I've tried to put people on either VMware or certainly not LiveVirtD, at least not for desktop use. But um, what I found is that VirtualBox tends to be easier for people to navigate. So they don't have to, mm-hmm. they don't have to look where that when they, like you were talking about sharing files or sharing USB devices is another one that, you know, people do all the time. Uh, they can find it themselves because those mm-hmm. options, it's a, it's a pretty navigatable software. Whereas even VMware, like setting up a shared USB device or a shared folder, there, there is no one click menu and you just, you know, choose on the USB device and click share. It's, it's a whole other complicated process to get it to go through. So I, yeah. I think VirtualBox really nails it for the, for the beginning user. It's pretty easy You download the dev and you set it up or you install it right from your repo. And then you're able to just get going with virtualization. Whereas basically every other virtualization platform requires some form of setup and a little bit of tweaking. I mean, I had to write a whole script. By the way, I, I looked it up in my script to see what the one recommended to me was. And it wasn't bad. It's called KVM. It was the KVM iteration there. But it's a whole script because it requires so many other packages mm-hmm. that you have to install here. It just goes on and on and scrolls on my screen. And then you've got to add yourself to the libvirtd groups and do system CTL restarts and all of these different things to get it up and running versus just installing VirtualBox and yep. going. So I'm sure KVM is more powerful and there are probably more things you can do with it potentially. But I think for your average user, even you guys who are more advanced users, seems like VirtualBox is the easiest to get up and running. Yeah. I mean, right? if, I, if I'm going to do, if I'm going to do like heavy deployment of like an enterprise or a company that wants to do like workstation virtualization. So for example, if you have a server that has like this big, massive server that has all of the software of the, of the, comp- of the, the, the employees on that server and then do a like a, a basic uh, dummy terminal where they just have a small uh, small uh, little computer that maybe just a raspberry pi that could even do it where they just remote into that server and they use it as if it's the real computer um in that sense i would not use VirtualBox because that would be a lot of weight that wouldn't be beneficial so you use something like kvm or um, or just QM, QEMU or something like that, that would be a lot better for the, that experience. But as far as like an individual use case for, you know, one VM or maybe even a couple VMs, I don't think that there's anything there's anything wrong with VirtualBox in that sense. Like, I think it was a great option for people to try out because it's just, it is easier and it works very well. Um, it, there are some issues that people don't like about the, the proprietary USB support. Uh, but I think that's not a big deal because you just, you install an extra package and you get access to it, and it's it's not it's not really difficult to do. And when you go to download, so, it gives you that little link for that. So I, I guess I would agree with that. I I would say servers use something like libvirtd, and for desktops use a VirtualBox. I will add, Ryan. Um, I'm not sure what guide you were following. I'll have a link, and maybe I'll share it with you, and we can throw it in the show notes. Um, there is I, I have a guide that I wrote out for for utilizing libvirtd. It's four commands. Four commands. You should be able to do it. It should take you no more than one minute. 
from the time nice. that you have a, a base operating system set up to the time that you have uh, Liberty up, running, everything good to go. It should be like four or five commands. Should not take that long. Oh, I would love so to it, see that. Yeah. Yeah, it should. It should. There, and I'm, you know, maybe there is a bunch of other stuff that guide was doing, and, and my guide literally just gets you up and running. But I'll, I'll share that with you. And, uh, and so if you have a server, you want to get into some more advanced virtualized environments because the advantage of Liberty, one of the nice things you can do is you can run it on a server in your basement and then you can connect to it from your laptop. So you can sit in your Skippies on the couch and, uh, and be eating Pringles and 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 managing virtual <laughs> environments, whereas with VirtualBox you have to have all of that computing power right there on the machine. Right. It's not you know it's not really set up to do remote control. Yeah, nice, exactly. that'd be awesome. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Yeah, one more thing about that is that uh, another thing about VirtualBox that might be good for people who are just getting started. You can actually find OVA files, which are appliances for VirtualBox, and you can have a VM that's already set up, like the distro's already been installed, all the configurations right. already set, and you just take it install the OVA and you're, you're good to go. You don't even have to figure out how to set up ISOs and things like you don't have to build your own VM to yeah, do that. Cool. So that's another option for like getting started anyway. Very nice. So Noah, your favorite subject here, raspberry pies. What can yes. we do with this one? Well, uh, you know, every time we get to Christmas, obviously the geeks among us, after we get done uh, stuffing our faces, then we venture off into our various little labs to go uh, to go do whatever it is that we're going to do. Right. And uh, if you're looking for a project and maybe you don't have one and you're like me and you have an extra stash of Raspberry Pis, turns out you can turn one of those into a Steam Link. Now, that is a project that was uh, released beta earlier, but now it is official. You can actually use a Raspberry Pi. I believe it's a, is it a Pi 3B and a Pi 3B Plus? Right, right. only those. Now, if you don't know what a Steam Link is, essentially what it allows you to do is it allows you to stream a game from a more powerful computer down to a less powerful computer. Because if you think about it, a game, as far as the controls, all you really need to be able to do is send XY coordinates to the computer and receive a 1080p stream back from the computer, low latency, of course. So you're going to want to have a wire connection to do that. But it turns out the processing power required to send a uh, a, a real-time 1080p stream and send XY coordinates from a controller actually fits inside of a Raspberry Pi. And so you're able to use Amazing. a Raspberry Pi 3B to, to accomplish that, it's, which is really cool because and the Steam Links weren't that expensive. They were like 50 bucks, I think, or yeah, 40 they, bucks. They or started out like 50 bucks and then they dropped, they, they started doing like fire sales and stuff. And then because they, they were, what was really cool is people were worried that the Steam Link was going to die. And everybody's like, the Steam Link is such a cool device. Even if it's not selling well, it's still a, it's still a great device. And I actually have right. one of those things. Uh, but they, they started fa- fire selling them. And now they're completely out because the last uh, big sale they did was like $5 for a Steam Link. And then once really? they completely were out of out of um, like you know out of inventory, they announced like the next week or two, um, we're gonna do we're doing a beta for Raspberry Pi. So if you don't you didn't get a chance to get a Steam Link, if you already have a Raspberry Pi, you can still have a Steam Link. And then yeah. within a week of after the beta started, they were like, "Here's the official release." And it's like, "Okay, you you have been working on this for a long time." So like this was their plan, and a lot of people were like worried that the Steam Link was going away. And now not only is it going away, it's actually more accessible to more people because of the fact that a lot of people already have a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. Right, or you can just go buy one for for less than the, for less yeah, than the Steam it's Link. It's cheaper than the Steam Link, yeah. They do have them on Amazon for fifty nine bucks. One thing I would suggest if you're going to do this is go pick up the Steam controller because it's actually yes. pretty cool. It's actually a really nice controller. Yep, I absolutely yeah. love it. And this is so fun because especially if you have people coming over for holidays and things, you know, you could 
first of all, it's just cool to show off your geek skill, right? And have a Raspberry Pi that you're streaming to. Uh, but secondly, you could have the gaming set up in your living room. So if you have kids and things, uh, cousins, whatever, coming over to your home, you could set up a game in there and let them play right from that Raspberry Pi. They don't have to be you know, down where your expensive computer is, they could just be sitting there in front of the TV that's playing a, with it there. That's a good point. So, it's, it's, it, yeah, keeps, it, it keeps that barrier from friends and family. Like, exactly. don't, mess, don't mess up my stuff. <laughs> I keep my office link uh, locked, and uh, you can go play the game upstairs. <laughs> um, speaking of which, uh, AMD has been just, we talked about earlier, dominating uh, in the news lately, which is fantastic offerings. And, they got me again here because you all know I'm going to get the new Vega GPU when it launches uh, early next year. But they have dropped two more processors out here that I want to get my hands on. I don't need them, but I want them. Um, they're, they basically have created two sub $75 processors mm-hmm. um, that have the Vega 3 GPU built into them. So you get your processor and your GPU in one for this sub $75. And it's a continuation of their Athlon line that they have here. It's the 220GE, which is a dual core, which is quad thread, 3.4 gigahertz, Vega 3 GPU for 65 bucks. Or you could get the 240GE, which gives you 3.5 gigahertz and Vega 3 GPU for $75 there. I went to try to buy one as soon as this news dropped. It's not available yet on Newegg. Uh, They still have the older... Uh, version of this uh, lineup, which I think is what the 210 or 200 G yeah, uh, out it, there. It's but, not even that. That one's not even that bad either because it's still like a 3.2, no, I think. And I think it's like 55 bucks or some yeah. ridiculous price out there. <laughs> and believe it or not, this is powerful enough to actually do some light gaming on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not meant for gaming. It's a very low power consumption card. But because of the GPU power uh, of this little device along with the CPU, you could play probably CSGO and some other lighter games out there and have a pretty good experience. You're going to be playing on max settings. Keep in mind, this is a value CPU, but very, very amazing little tool that you could use for media servers, having a spare machine set up on the cheap so you don't have to distro hop on your main machine anymore. Uh, All kinds of applications you could do and you get into it for nothing. There was a benchmark that said that it it can even do uh, decent quality at 720p. Like yeah. de- decent frames, like it wouldn't be great, but you know, decent. Like the fact that you can even do that on such a cheap uh, process, or, or actually a GPU processor combo thing, even the fact that you could even do that at all is amazing in comparison to like five years ago, that was just unheard of and apparently impossible. That people thought that it's at the time. Well, I guarantee you when this drops, I'll have a video on it on my channel because I can't wait to play with it and see what it can run. So you can't beat that for the price. Yeah. Nice. Okay, so moving on to uh, some other articles that we've been uh, finding out here. And, and the next topic is uh, to do with photography on Linux. Um, and it was a great article regarding the possibilities of being a professional photographer uh, on the Linux platform. And as you already know, we had uh, an interview with Wendy Hill of um, Wendy Hill Photography on episode 89 of the show. And so we know it is definitely uh, possible already. Uh, but this particular f- photographer, uh, Carlos Enchenique, um, is a is a Miami, Florida photographer specializing in fine art and travel photography. And what was interesting about it was he he, put, he does all of his work on an almost entirely FOSS software base. Um, and, he, and there's a nice big long list of uh, some of the stuff that he uses. So first of all, obviously, 
Michael will love the fact that he uses the KDE um, Neon desktop. Um, and then he goes along to list um, a whole raft of applications that you can that you can use, um, including raw therapy, Digicam, Darktable, LensFun, DisplayCal, QImage One, Rapid Photo Downloader, GIMP, and he also mentions Krita or Krita, Lightzone, and Polar. Now, I've recently got in uh, to f- photography probably predominantly because of uh, of Wendy Hill. So mm-hmm. I've got myself um, a little camera, but I'm still in the experimental mode at the moment, so I've not actually put my images on my computer per se to start playing around. But it's, it's really good to know that I'll be able to do most of these things um, with these applications. So is anybody using these to do their photographic work at the moment? I use a lot of these applications for non-photography, uh, more of like... like uh, Krita is great for drawing and painting, uh, digital art, uh, so things like that. And so, like this, like you can take these applications that are meant for like manipulation and put them into like the photography thing and make it even better. Uh, but the uh, I, I like Digicam is great for managing your photos. That um, the I actually didn't I've I've heard about it before. I never really tried it until we talked to Wendy and she was mentioning the, the rapid photo downloader, and mm-hmm. that that application is so ridiculously useful. That like when you when you take your like even on your phone when you have uh, your your photos and it's like the like DSC or image one hundred whatever like ridiculous number following uh, when you when you put that on your computer you have to go in and manually change it but if you have like uh, you can just like only pull in certain photos using rapid uh, rapid photo downloader and then say. Now rename every single one of these photos based on this particular like variable, this date structure, and, and, and etc. And you can just control it exactly, and it will import and automatically rename every every photo you bring in. And that is like such a ridiculously useful tool. So, like, there's a lot mm-hmm. of stuff in here that's really good. I've used yep. uh, Darktable quite a bit. Uh, the thing about Darktable is. You know, when you start getting into photography, one of the first things you learn is that you should not shoot in a compressed format. You should shoot in uncompressed or what they call raw. And the idea behind that is, is it preserves the, it records the actual sensor data, not the processed image. So what mm. you can do is you can then go generate a processed image from that sensor data in post. And so let's say your white balance was off. Let's say the picture was really orange. You can go find something in the picture that's white that you can tell the sensor data, hey, basically interpret colors based off of what we know is a known quantity of white and then generate a picture. And you can do that. Darktable allows you to do that. So the nice thing is, let's say wow. you've taken, and this actually happened to me at a, at a wedding. We had shot like, I don't know, maybe two, 300 photos. And what Darktable will allow you to do is go and take a single photo and say, I was in this room and I shot and the white balance was off. So here's the correction and here's all of the changes I want to make. Now I can save that as a template and go apply that to all other 200 photos that I have imported. Um, and so it's, it's a time-saving feature, but it's also mm. one of those things that once you start to kind of get in there, you kind of know, okay, I captured my images this way. Here are all the things I want to tweak just a little bit. Now I can go apply that general kind of uh, photo tweaking to all of the photos I took in that session. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so I've, I've just found Darktable to be, and I've used it in comparison with Lightroom. Yeah. So, uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and and I have yet to find anything that I could do in Lightroom that I uh, that I couldn't do and now have to that I can't do in in Darktable. And I know that's yeah. not true of all the Adobe products. It's certainly true in this one. Now, so go on, Ryan. No, go ahead. I was going to say what I find fascinating about fascinating about that as well is 
Um, I didn't know Darktable could do that, so that would be really, really good. And now I can now understand why Wendy spends, I don't know, three, maybe four hours calibrating her her monitors, because there was a very interesting post, I think, in our um, in our Telegram group where somebody showed their dual monitor setup, and there was a fantastic picture of a, like, a blue-eyed husky or something. And I think if they just put that post up and you saw it, you'd think, wow, that's some really nice monitors. Then he showed after he had calibrated the two the two monitors so that they were showing colors as they and the, the photography was just like wow that yeah, is yeah. Light, light and day so yes i think it would be very important if you're going to pick your one photograph to pre-process through through dark table you're going to want to make sure that you're looking at the right colors so you get that balance mm-hmm. um uh, done properly so now i understand why they go through that calibration process when you've got tools as clever as dark table doing doing what you just said it can do it's astounding well not only that i think it was interesting it was niles who posted those pictures in our telegram uh group but you know when he did the calibration he used a data color spider 2 usb device that he had bought used for cheap so you don't mm-hmm. have to have the latest uh, calibrator to stick on your monitor to do the color calibration because you do need a separate tool that basically reads the light coming off the monitor and things. You can get a used one for pretty cheap and then use the Display Cal app to basically do the adjustments. So you could do all of this in Linux. And I, that's the story that I get out of this that I love so much mm-hmm. is the professional application of people. And if you look at the individual who wrote this article's photography, it's incredible. It's just mm-hmm. absolutely stunning beautiful work and he's doing it all in linux so we're starting to see more and more stories about these professionals right coming into linux to do their work and that to me is a huge gain for linux to show how powerful the tools are Mm. and i don't know if it's just one of those sort of like natural phenomena that we've talked about it on our show but Aren't you guys seeing a lot more of this stuff coming through about photography now? I know I certainly am seeing YouTube videos on it, questions yeah. being posted. Yeah, um, none of it's helped my photography become better, but yeah, it's exploding everywhere. <laughs> yeah, my my uh, my phone isn't really helpful for the, all, most of these applications, but uh, <laughs> but it's I, I, there is a lot of things that's really interesting. I watched a couple of video uh-huh. photos or videos about the uh, about photography using Linux, and there's a lot of things that I didn't have any idea that these applications could do. Because I, I knew a lot about what Lightroom could do and things like that because I used to use like Adobe products for like a decade. Um, so when I... Gross. Well, shush. Uh, so <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's a lot of cool things that Lightroom could do. And then when I was looking at these videos about Darktable, I, everything that I liked about Lightroom was available in Darktable. And while I'm not a professional photographer... Uh, the the, every, the the amount of things that can be done in Darktable and the fact that it's a modular based system, so you can like people can make uh, additional features and just you can just install them into the system. Like that is really cool, and like I think Darktable is definitely something that any photographer who's interested in Linux should definitely look at. Yeah, very cool. So another thing that has been a little popular recently is the discussion on header bars or. Uh, client-side decorations. Is this single-click or double-click argument all over again? No. That one is like there is no... Okay, there is an actual good answer, and it's double. Uh, But there's... By default, anyway. There's there's definitely uh, some discussions on this one that is like... It's it's kind of like those those type of arguments where 
there is no right answer. And uh, like you could say that the header bars are nice because they they do save a little bit of pixel space, so they get the screen real estate's improved, uh, screen real estate is improved, things like that. That's cool. But also it has some issues of like hiding all the win- menus and items inside of like a single button. Well, let's step back menu. here. Can you explain what yeah. we're talking about? What That's is a favorite. header bar, title bar, and okay. all that? So header bars are a combination of other things from Windows. Like So it's, it's a new concept of taking the t- – like a Windows by a traditional, traditional window has a title bar, then it has a menu bar, and then beneath that it has the toolbar. And the com- the concept of a header bar is to take all of those and combine them into one uh, UI structure. Now there are various different things that do it. Uh, Mac has a structure that does it, but not all applications, even on Mac, do it. And it's on on Linux, it's kind of like hit or miss. Like there are some applications that use header bars really well, and it looks great, and it works great, and there's and they have access to all the things that you need. But there's also a lot of applications that use header bars that are hiding everything inside of the hamburger menu which is the menu with the three lines, if you're not aware what that term means. Now I'm hungry. Right? That's yeah. my bad. Um, but I think that this is a great article because he goes into different, like he goes into the history of the header bar and things like, and, and also the functionality of different things and why the header bars are not necessarily the best option. And here's why the the structure of the traditional ways is, is could be could be improved rather than replaced. And that's a bit of an understatement because I think his article starts off, let me just tell you why you should never use header bars. And he gets really animated about about why he shouldn't do it. Well, I mean, that's... I didn't want to make. I didn't want to express it that way because that's actually how I feel. I I just do not like <laughs> header bars. I felt like you but, ghost wrote this article. In fact, I remember you putting this article in the news. I say, did put hey, it in. Cover this. We need to cover uh, yes because it, it's such a Michael way of arguing. Instead of just being like, "Hey, I prefer this method," and maybe a couple bullet points why. No, there are paragraphs of the history of header bars and the issues that it can cause. That I mean, he he formulated yeah. a very powerful argument uh, mm-hmm. against uh, them being a, well, a was, fatally flawed system, uh, as he put it. Yeah, I, I think that they are they are definitely like they they could have potential in the future if these uh-huh. things were modified. But the the fact that they are currently being adopted while they're not really ready creates a, a big user problem. And while I was reading it, I was thinking, did I write this? <laughs> but uh, apparently I didn't. So, uh, so Mac uses the global menu kind of header yeah. bar. It compensates uh, because of the global menu. Like the, Gnome the, the, uses it, right? No, uh, that's the, the problem. Most, no. That's one of the problems. Okay. The problem with header bars is that it removes a lot of features away from the toolbars and away from the menu. So it's not there anymore. It's hidden behind an, a, a hamburger and, menu. But in the Mac, it, they it use, also makes they it inconsistent. Yeah, it's inconsistent because mm. you don't know yeah. what side of the window the buttons are supposed to be, or where the or like what what these functions are because they have specific icons that sometimes don't even make sense to what they're supposed to be used for and things like that. But the the way that Mac compensated was to move all, instead of having the the menu bar inside of the, the the window itself, they moved it to the global menu. So you still have all of those tools that you wanted. It just looks prettier now. So like mm. they they compensated like by making every application require the global menu in some way. So you still have all those benefits of those of the menu the menu bar, 
but you don't have it directly on the actual application. Okay, so when you said GNOME doesn't use it, you mean specifically GNOME doesn't use the global menu. Right. They do use header bar. Correct. They don't have a compensation for yeah, okay. it. Yeah, so they create, menus. Right, yeah. so by using the header bars without having the global menu, you don't have a compensation for that problem. So it creates a user experience that is quite confusing for a lot of people depending on what type of application they're using. So I, I think that's, I that's think why it's a big deal. And I think now I hit it on the head there as well with um, like continuity, because for me, if you're going to sort of like access a hidden menu, you right mouse click something. Yeah. And then you come up with a little pop up and all the rest of it. No, on this particular application or desktop environment I was using, and I can't remember what it is. You had to go to the top left hand corner where there was an icon mm. and you had to single click it before you could find a whole yeah. raft of stuff with preferences. If you're, yeah, and that's if it's designed right, because remember, there was a time in Unity's history where, well, actually, I think it still is this way in Unity, that where the global menu isn't even visible until you put your mouse up there. And like my head doesn't work that way. <laughs> exactly. Right? Like my mind will not tell my hand to send the mouse cursor up to this blank bar unless I see what it is I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very, it's a very confusing way to, to handle things. I, yeah. I'm with Michael. You should never use should never use it. Yeah, I don't like the mm -hmm. header bars at all. Um, but the, the Unity eventually fixed it by making the global all of, all all the time. Um, but the way that Mac has it, it is it's always there, and that's why it works for them. Um, but there there is one thing that I did want to point out of the local integrated menus that the Unity did. That nothing else has, by the way. It's unfortunate, but Unity has. Uh, they used to have like with sixteen oh four, you could definitely try it, where you could convert it so that the, instead of the global menu being at the top of the thing, it could it would still be there technically, but not normally. So instead of the title bar being there and then the menu bar, they combine the menu bar with the title bar. So you hover over the title bar and then all of a sudden all of the menu options display there. While that is the same issue of being hidden, you, you would often move your mouse up there to move around the window anyway so you'd see it pretty quickly. And if you mm -hmm. maximize the window, it would remove the title bar and move that to the global menu and then automatically show it when it's maximized. So it was like they, they compensated for it in a very good way that I think that if people were to like, I think that a lot of DEs should consider that approach because the local integrated system allows you to have everything available while also not taking up that much space for it. Uh, but I would say that the traditional menu structure is probably even better because you can remove I mean all that's of those what stuff. I'm saying why are we reinventing the wheel here like I, I've <laughs> never had an issue if you keep the traditional menu there it works are we really just catering to a bunch of designers out there aka Michael no want to make things look pretty no because a lot of designers don't like it because it, it removes tools. as it as designers there's we we like the tools being accessible so that's for example right. like uh, any kind of photo manipulation, you want all of those as, as quick as possible. And the header bars are, that's one of the things that makes me hate header bars is because they get in the way and they, they make it more difficult to do simple things. So I have mm -hmm. to click this button instead of like, if you know the file menu in, in like the regular menu bar, you hit Alt F and then there you go, you're on that menu. Or Alt-E to go to the edit menu. And you can just use your, your cursor. You don't even use your mouse. But now with the header bars, you have to click the hamburger Well, if menu. you look at a browser, it's the same thing. thing. Like, who doesn't use the bookmarks toolbar? I'm, I'm purely curious because... I don't to use get the bookmarks to toolbar because I use other the Other ways, you have to Why? do three or four different shortcuts Because I use to the sidebar. To your favorites. I use the, side, I use the sidebar heavily. I used to well, use the bookmark toolbar all the time. But I use the sidebar now because you can do it with the... The sidebar? The yeah. 
sidebar. Where's you, the sidebar? You have to activate Bookmark sidebar. You have to activate the sidebar in various different commands. So a control B would activate the so sidebar you, for so, bookmarks. So hold on a second. You you browse your entire you browse your entire website, all of your websites you browse with like, I don't know, an, uh, an eighth of the screen. Yeah, an eighth of the screen cut off because your bookmarks that you, <laughs> No, no, you, no, no. Like, I I hit control B to activate my bookmarks and then I hit, hit it again to go away. Oh, oh my gosh! What are you talking about? This, okay, this is the difference between someone having a few bookmarks and someone having over a thousand bookmarks, and that's actually me going down from the previous two thousand that I had. Uh, oh my so, gosh! Like, it's, let's move on. It's how just much, more by the way, useful. how much does it cost? Did Nate have to pay you to ghostwrite that article? They split the profit sixty forty. <laughs> Speaking of splitting profit, uh, there's an interesting article that's come up uh, regarding Discord, which we've utilized before to communicate to each other in games. We even have a Discord Destination Linux channel, although my preference is Mumble. It seems like people can't figure out Mumble, so nobody uses it. They prefer Discord for some reason, but whatever. Either way, Discord is out there, whatever and they are creating a store to sell games in. Now, the reason we never covered this up to this point is because who cares? They're not selling Linux games, and uh, it really has no impact on us. But turns out that recently when they were doing a discussion with the dev team on Reddit that Discord said, good news Everything we built for the store actually works great on Mac OS and Linux, and a lot of our devs use these platforms internally. Of course they do. Right. Uh, we just wanted to focus on releasing Windows first. Bad move. Uh, and to be honest, that's where most of our users are. Whatever. We will definitely bring them things to all the platforms. I feel like I'm just replying to everything they say because it makes me angry as well, I'm reading it's it. It's also because it's ridiculous. It makes me happy and angry at the same time. I understand um, your point for it, and I also understand your frustration for it, but I also say we focused on releasing on Windows first to make sure everything works because that's where most of our users are. When you only have one platform, that is where most of your users will be. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. So hold on, hold on. Let me check your mail. Carry the one. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's an interesting move by Discord. They're obviously gunning for Steam here. Now, one of the things that they did to really try to get to the heart of the developers is they're trying to do a 90-10 split, meaning the developers get 90% of their profits from mm -hmm. the store and Discord only gets 10%. Now, Valve takes a much more hearty 30% of the devs profits for every game that they sell. But then again, look at the market size difference Yeah, Valve is uh, like 80%, that, you're, yeah. that you're dealing with there. So I'm not, I'm always a fan of competition. I'm slightly biased here because of all of the work that <laughs> Valve has done for Linux, not only creating a store for Linux and bringing gaming to Linux, but also what they've done with Proton and other things recently. It's going to take a lot to, for me to, um, break my addiction to Valve and for everything that they've done for the Linux uh, ecosystem. But I think competition ultimately is good. And yes. if Discord goes out there and releases a good store with Linux support, which it should have done first, um, then maybe there will be some good deals on there where you could pick up some games in the community and people will benefit because you have competition. And Valve may be forced to react and change their split here, which would be good for developers. So ultimately, competition's always a good thing. So good yeah. for Discord. I don't hate their platform. I don't dislike it. I just have to think back at all Valve has done uh, for right. Linux, and it would be hard for me not to want to give them more money. 
Yeah, you say you're slightly biased. I mean, I'm pretty much completely biased. I mean, the the fact yeah. that before before Steam was on Linux, the amount of games on Linux was maybe 20, maybe. Right. Now we're at like right. 6,000 or something. Like the the and it was all thanks to the that Steam coming to Linux and that's and it's been only like I think 6 years now since we've had it and we've it's exploded the amount of people who are you're wanting to use Linux and the Steam Play thing they're doing to make people be able to play Windows games without how much fuss like that's awesome they're doing so much to benefit I mean definitely it benefits themselves because they get a lot of more people playing their games on their platform well they have a more reliable ecosystem to right. rely on too right like yeah. they don't have to worry about the the rug they don't have to worry as much about the rug getting ripped out from under them Right, exactly. They don't have to. They they can like they are. They they said specifically they were going to Linux because that way they could be contributing to the community rather than just at you know doing whatever or obeying whatever Microsoft wants them to do. So there's one more thing I want to talk about before we move on for Discord, and that is the the ninety ten split. It seems like it's a massive difference between uh like you know the Valve setup of seventy thirty. And while yes, that is true, it's a big difference. Um, it's not that much of a difference between the Epic Game Store that they're now competing with again. So, like, they, they announced their whole store revenue split because of the Epic Games Store revenue split, which was 88-12. And that might seem like, in some cases, that it automatically discords better. But actually, it's not, because a lot of the engines that these game engines are built on, they give you access to use the engine for free, but every time you make a sale, there's a percentage that goes to the engine. So, for example, Unreal, which is made by Epic, it costs 5% of whatever your sell is to get use, to use the engine. So, right. if you were to use the Discord uh, store, then you'd actually be doing 15% to the, the platform, because 10 for the platform five for the the actual uh engine system so it's 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 a little bit more than uh, more it's closer and and then then you it appears to be at first uh but one of our patrons brought up something interesting it would be easier for steam to create a discord client in steam than it's going to be for discord to create a store that people are going to be addicted to and now that's actually a good point because they already started doing it Nice. So you can actually do. There's chat systems, and there's now a voice. There's a voice chat system that's available. And like, if you, I think it's 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 maybe it's already in the new Steam client, but it's definitely in the beta version because I have the beta of Steam. Uh, but mm-hmm. it, it's you can do like a chat server system thing like that, and just in, avoid Discord completely if you wanted to. There you go. Yep, we tried it on a a, a, a Nabist YouTube stream, and it actually works quite well. Yeah. Oh, nice, nice. So something that isn't doing that well from Valve right now is um, Artifact. Yeah. The, the game Artifact is not necessarily doing uh, really good right now because of, um, well, it, apparently it's, it's just too complicated to a lot of people. Because if, if you're if you're you know familiar with card games, it's so different that you kind of have to learn a whole new system. Well, I'm not familiar with it at all, so it doesn't really bother me that way. But <laughs> so. Uh, but anyway, it's 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 really cool that they did one day support or day one support for everything. So it's it's awesome that they are you know putting the effort into it. But they started at like sixty thousand players at one point, and then have now dropped to around twelve thousand players. So I wow. think the complications that they have of like just getting used to it is you know uh, is a is a factor that they need to look into. Like I, I I'm pretty sure that there was a stream that Ryan did where he had a. Um, <laughs> A few complications, uh, unfortunately, that I noticed where uh, he unfortunately did lose the first two games he played. And, you know, normally that's not that big of a deal in the tutorial, though. And uh, 
true. I lost in the tutorial. How do you lose in a tutorial? This is how you play our game. They always let you win. Well, that that, 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 that does prove how complicated like, we, it is. We, we can't teach this one. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but that that does kind of gives you an example of like it's kind of it, it's pretty confusing if that is a problem yeah. that people are having then it makes sense that you know a lot of people are kind of dropping out of it so uh, they did say that they're actually going to work on making it some changes and improve the game uh, but have you have you tried it out again Ryan since the last time yeah I, listen I really like this game at the end of the day when I compare it to Hearthstone which is its greatest competitor out there by Blizzard who does nothing for Linux so we can go ahead and forget about them. When you compare it to that, I think it has all of the formula there for a fantastic tactical card game like this. Um, it is a lot of fun. There's a lot of strategy. It's like learning to play chess with the different cards and things that you have to deploy. Uh, so there's a huge learning curve here. They don't take it easy on you in the tutorial, uh, as shown in the live stream that I did. I, I got the game, I installed it, and I streamed it live, which was kind of funny. And I'll do that again with other games because then there's none of this pretending I know what I'm doing. It, you get the raw feeling of a game from the start, which I thought was kind of cool and seeing people's reaction to it. With that said, um, there are a lot of things in here that kind of have made the game difficult to approach and also kind of a money pit if you wanted new cards and things. The good news is that they are listening to their customers they are listening to the feedback and they have made several updates in this very short period of time, changing things around, giving more options for people to get cards for free um, without having to spend their money, but basically through grinding and things just like Hearthstone does it. Uh, and also creating more balance because there's a lot to this game. It is ridiculously complex uh, because you've got just tens of thousands of, of moves and counter moves and everything else. And they have to try to balance all of these cards out amongst every deck to make sure that everybody has a good time. And that's going to take time for them to get that all figured out. But they've got new uh, free-for-all tournament modes in there. Um, they also have it so that your cards now will say voice lines because you couldn't chat before, which is probably a good thing because you can imagine what people would be saying to each other, uh, <laughs> which is the same thing Hearthstone does, by the way. You can't chat in that either. But you generally had a couple of little quips you could you know, send out that voice actors would come in and do uh, to kind of rouse your opponent a little bit. So they're doing that with their cards and uh, they have just more and more updates coming on the skill trees and progression systems. So the good news is Val's in it for the long run here. I think that eventually they're going to get these little things worked out and it's a game that I still plan on continuing uh, to play and hopefully eventually be able to beat the tutorial. No, I'm kidding. I actually <laughs> beat it. <clears throat> nice. So, um, I'm just getting a little worried here because I'm waiting for the game of the week and been let off. <laughs> you were let off the hook, Early Christmas present. No Merry Christmas, my friend. <laughs> um, if you are interested in cleaning up some hard disk space so that you, oh, I don't know, maybe have some space to record the next version of Destination Linux, Michael, uh, or... If you are a presidential campaign and candidate and you need to delete all of your emails, whatever your whatever your <laughs> use case is, we are not here to judge, but we do have a recommendation for you. That is BleachBit. BleachBit is this week's software spotlight. It's a particularly great piece of software, again, for Michael, because yes. 
He's only got 200 megabytes of disk space. And so he's got to use it very carefully. 573 megabytes, thank you. I don't. I feel like that's not a thing. Because yeah. it's got to be divisible. Never mind. It, BleatFit will allow you to wipe thousands of applications, Firefox, Internet Explorer, Adobe Flash, Google Chrome, Opera, Safari, all of that stuff. Um, it will it will integrate. It will delete all of these files, but it doesn't just delete them. It doesn't just mark them in the partition table as available to be written to again. It actually goes and writes bits back and forth, zero one zero one, and alternates so that those files can never ever be recovered. Um, that's something that I think is sometimes lost on people. They if if the file is is deleted, then they assume well it's gone forever. It's not actually. The partition table just marks that space as hey you could write something over again. And if you use something like we we're talking about at the beginning of the episode, PhotoRec, you can actually go and recover those files and just tell the partition table hey actually I do want that data. Let's go ahead and pull it back. And uh, BleachBit will re- will prevent people from doing that. Yeah, there's an nice. application that was like this on Windows, and it's been so long since I've been on Windows now, I can't think of its C-cleaner. name. Yeah, CCleaner, thank you. Um, but basically, go in there, free cache, delete cookies, clear internet history, shred temporary files, delete logs, that type of stuff. It was very cool to find and come across this one for Linux out there that kind of does the same thing and remove that tracing out there. And you're right, I got to the point now where you know people who are not tech... Uh, minded will basically hand me their old laptops and they're too afraid to throw them away because they know that that stuff can be recovered. So they give them all to me, which is fantastic because I get more toys to play with. Um, but they give them out to me to wipe the hard drives off of them. And then I usually keep the, the uh, laptops themselves, but uh, it is an issue that comes across that people don't realize just you deleting your files does not make that stuff go away and people can recover it with very little technical knowledge. It doesn't take a lot of skill to recover this information off of hard drives either. No. So it's a really cool tool. Download the software and put it on a flash drive, which, by the way, is a service you can offer if you're an independent IT consultant and uh, would like to help people recover the data they deleted. There you go. Yep, absolutely. And Zeb, so, what is our tip and trick of the week? Um, we've got a couple this week, and it's all to do with um, terminal commands. So we you know apologies if you've already heard of some of these, but hopefully we'll have a, a few surprises for you. So here you are, and I think we were doing um, – I was watching a, a stream earlier where somebody was just trying to test various bits and pieces. So they started off a ping. And, of course, unless you put a time limit on that ping, it's going to run forever. So whatever command you have started – um, in Linux, you can actually do Control C, and it will abort that command. So in other words, it'll break it, and it will take you back to the um, command prompt. Mm-hmm. Now, having done that, and you've now got your screen filled with lots of pings over to Google.com, um, mm-hmm. you need to reset that and get it off your screen. Otherwise, um, Ryan's going to have a go at you. So you can actually type the word reset. And it will clear the terminal just like you've opened a new window. Yep. Um, You can also type the word clear um, to clear all the text from the terminal. Reset will actually make it where you can't scroll back up, whereas clear you can still scroll back up. Oh, kind of, really? It just kind of moves the the thing back to the top, so it's it looks like it's a, it's a it's been cleaned, uh, but you can still scroll up if you need to. So this ah, tip okay. reminded me, Zeb, of when I started in Linux not so long ago, and I would run a command, and you know how you accidentally maybe type something wrong, and it just 
it gives you the little blinking cursor underneath and you can't, and I would just shut down the console, open a new one every time. Or like you said, using ping or anything, I'd shut down the terminal window, open a new one. And then eventually I ran across this and I was like, Oh my gosh, that, that head slapping moment. Like it's just this <laughs> command here. Uh, so very, very useful. Uh, and especially for newer users who may not be familiar. There's actually another one that's even better. So you can still do clear and type it all if you want to, because they are different. But if you hold, if you control L, that will also clear it, just like the typing clear. Nice. All right. Nice. It's not just useful, by the way, for new users. Those of us who make tutorials use, <laughs> yeah. use clear and reset all the time. Right. Yep. Oh, I screwed that up. I need to go back and make a new cut. Uh, I need the mouse to be in the exact same position, the window to be in exactly the same position so that I can edit it and nobody will know that it's been edited. Reset. Your friend. <laughs> yeah. Yep, absolutely. And then whilst you're on the control key, um, you can also, instead of moving the mouse to, to, to go over to the X, you can do a control D. Mm -hmm. And that will close the terminal window for you. Um, now, this next one, I thought I was popping in here, and I thought, yeah, it'd be really, really good. And then, of course, Michael came along with his of course. Uh, scenario. So let me let me explain it for you. There's a really nifty little command called history. And if you type history, it will just roll up your screen and show you every command that you've ever typed out. Now, for me, that's really handy. And then Michael explained afterwards, well, yes, it is and it isn't because you're a distro hopper. So you've probably <laughs> only got 200 commands listed in your history window so the idea behind history is you type the word history you scroll up with the mouse you find the command that you want and it has a number next to it and then all you do is you hit the exclamation mark which is shift one and michael's going to tell me it's what's what's the shift one bang or something <laughs> i mean it's exclamation but yeah it's called bang it's one of the yeah the slang so, terms for it like yes. a bit like tack but we won't go into that one well, yeah. um, so you hit exclamation mark six and it will just automatically run that command for you. Um, so I find this quite useful of an, of an evening when I'm trying to just lower the monitor brightness a bit. I don't use um, any of the applications you can do. I just use a quick XR&R command. So having to, instead of having to type them all out again, and again, the beautiful thing for me is I now know that on my current setup, 11, 12, and 13 were one by one dim my monitors down to, a, to an acceptable level. So hmm. I just go you know, exclamation mark 10, 11, and 12, and I'm done. Um, but as Michael pointed out, it's a bit difficult when you've got three and a half thousand commands <laughs> queued up. I have a, I have a huge history for my commands. Do you, do you, and Michael, do you never, do you never go back and delete your bash history? Uh, occasionally, but I like to have like to go back and search for it, but you know, so I'll tell you, speaking of going back and searching through Bash History, one of the things that I'll do, if I have to go reset up a server, and maybe it's a couple of years ago and it's been a little bit since I've gone through the installation process, I'll export the Bash History out because then even if I run into an issue and I'm like, yeah, I'm not real sure how I got that set up, at least, if nothing else, I can go back and look at all of the commands I executed the first time I got the server up and running, and I can kind of follow it almost as kind of like a undocumented tutorial. Hmm. Um, but what I found is that, like you said, you know, this laptop is, I don't know, three years old now. And it, it you know, it accumulates tens of thousands of, of bash commands a year because that's, you know, what I do. So I'll find myself once every couple of months, I'll export bash history out to a text file, put it somewhere onto a flash drive in case I ever go, have to go back and reference something. And then I start over fresh again, specifically to avoid the, hey, I have to find that command I, I, I found and I don't want to scroll through 6,000 of them to get there. That's a good mm -hmm. point. I'll, so I'll think about that. 
Yeah. So can you can you let us know how to export that bash command in, and we'll put it in the show notes and then we'll sure. know that we can we we can organize it. So your bash commands are stored in dot in your home directory as dot bash underscore history. So what you could right. do is you could just copy that file. Now I'm a lazy human being. I it's it, I I need three or four reasons just to get out of my chair, much <laughs> less go digging for a hidden file somewhere. So what I do right. is I'll, I'll I will cat so cat which is essentially spit out in text cat dot slash ba or slash you know dot bash underscore history for that file and then i'll put the little carrot that i don't know what the, i guess it's a less than symbol the one that it's goes to the right than. yeah the one <laughs> yeah. that goes to the right and then i'll put you know the date and then bash history and then whatever the computer name is so noah's thinkpad or whatever dot txt and then that will export my bash history out to this text file that is now not hidden so i don't have to go dig for it or unhide files mm -hmm. or anything like that mm -hmm. uh and then i'll just move that little file over and then just rm dot bash underscore history will delete your bash history interesting thing about deleting your bash history and we got into this when we started building custom kiosk computers for people um when if you delete your bash history and then you type exit <laughs> it rewrites bash history has exit so you have to, it's a little more complicated. If you actually want the bash history to be completely cleared out, it takes a little bit more work. But, but yeah, uh, the bash history writes when you close the terminal. So if, if you've done a bunch of commands and you're wondering why those aren't in your bash history, close out of your terminal, exit out of the terminal, then open again, and it will write to that bash history file. Nice. nice. There's, so there's... Michael will do the, the final one on this, is, and he'll explain how he searches through his bash history instead of having to scroll. The rest of us could take a break while he explains this. Okay, well, this is not necessarily the... Step like, one of 10,000. Okay, so now that I have the suggestion from Noah to export it and just use files and I could use my text editor, which I'm going to do now, so this is no longer what I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Control-R allows you to quickly search in like a reverse search mode and you just start typing what you want. And you can type it, uh, you know, type letters and it'll like automatically... Output what you like the what matches it the best, and you keep typing more letters, and it will try it will try to match even more like to whatever you might find. Uh, so I I used to do that a lot, and uh, you can also keep uh, pressing Control R to show like what matches next in like a in like a, a repeated message. So that's a, another option. But there is one thing um, during this uh, discussion I, re I realized that there's two things that I use all the time and are incredibly useful and a lot of people might not know if you uh okay three things uh if if you use uh, save it for episode 102 that's your cliffhanger thanks for watching the show <laughs> this is too this is too <laughs> applicable for this one to, to not include it but um you know how you can do home and end on your keypad your your keyboard or keypad, whatever. And you can go from the, the home and end will go to the beginning of the, the command line if you have a really long command, and end will go to the end. Makes sense. But if you hold control and hit the left and right arrow keys, you actually will skip every segment. So each word will skip back and forth. Nice. So you can save time that way. Now, the reason why you'd want to do that is because you can't really use your mouse to click in a specific part of the commands, but you use control arrows to get to where you want. Then let's say, for example, you're doing sudo apt or sudo apt install application name but you want to do multiple applications so instead of going backspace multiple times you hit control uh, left to jump the beginning of that then hit control k and it will delete everything after the cursor so you can just start typing whatever nice. you want and if you want to do, and something also similar is control u which will delete everything in the beginning before the cursor 
So you can just, you know, you can have most of the command already written and just clear out what you don't need and then add whatever you want. It saves a ton of time. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Well, there you go. That is our tips and tricks of the week as well as our software spotlight. A big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux, however you do it. And I just want to say we love our patrons. Mm -hmm. I just want to give a special shout out for all of the incredible support, especially that's happened recently after episode 100 of Destination Linux, which was an awesome episode, a huge celebration. And thank you guys so much for supporting and all of the amazing kind comments uh, that you guys gave in the YouTube videos and emails that you sent just telling us how much the show means to you. That means the world to us and helps us definitely get the motivation to keep going each and every week. And by the way, you can become a patron yourself and watch us do the show live. There is a lot of material you don't get to see. Uh, it's all mistakes, but yeah. it's still material you don't get to see. Uh, and you can also hang with, out with us after the show. Um, and uh, also before the show, you can join us as we wait for Michael to finally show up. And you could do that for just a dollar, which is darn You can join the waiting room. Yeah, Who doesn't want love waiting rooms? <laughs> and Zeb, how can people get a hold of us? Yep, don't forget, send us your emails um, on anything you think about the show, any burning questions you've got. And we've got numerous methods. Um, comments at destinationlinux.org. We have a Telegram group, a Discord, a Google+, a Twitter, a Mastodon, and many other ways that um, Michael has set up for us at destinationlinux.org forward slash contact. So keep them coming, and specifically this week, let us know what you think is the best distro and the best desktop environment for 2018 yeah. and why. Uh, and also remember to like that smash button and uh, s share the show. I did it again. Share the show on social media. There we go. Got it. Uh, and also, um, just so if you're not aware, we all have our own individual uh, channels and podcasts, things like that that we do separately. So if you want to check those out, uh, you can go to uh, DOS Geek channel for, to find stuff from Ryan, especially the, the security video that he talked about earlier in the show. Uh, and mm -hmm. also, you, you could check out the latest stream from Zeb, whether he's tearing down ca caravans or uh, direwolves, those, those two. Uh, yep. So you could do that at, at, at Zebedee Boss on YouTube. And you can check out the Ask Noah show where you can ask Noah yeah. all kinds of things about business and Linux, things, everything like that, where, uh, you know, if you, he's here to do everything that you can, that you, that people said you couldn't do on Linux. <laughs> and Look at I that have the shirt. shirt. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you can also check out my content at tuxdigital.com where you can find videos about random Linux things, as well as the This Week in Linux uh, news podcast that I, I do. Right, awesome. so just before just before you finish then quick impromptu uh noah ask noah yeah how do i stop dying in walls of midgard <laughs> <laughs> that's the one way you can stump him is ask a gaming question yeah that's right yeah i, I, I listen i'll no scope you 1v1 <laughs> that's like that's like one of the four gaming terms that i have learned and so that's just my go-to like i have like a repertoire and i just i pull out one of those lines to make myself sound not as stupid as i am listen let's play uh, let's let's do a charity game let's let's find, let's pick up let's do this let's pick a project an open source project that needs some help yeah and uh and let's play and and for you know they can they can have like team noah team zeb team michael uh team ryan and then you know we'll play 
owners against each other and people can pledge a certain amount of money, you know, to who's going to win or whatever. And, but all the proceeds go to that open source project. I love it. I like it. Yeah. That's a good idea. We're going to set that up. Yep. And uh, obviously if you choose Das Geek team, we're going to win. So just put that out there. Unless it's Rocket I League. More, I have more guns than he does. <laughs> I bet you don't. I come <laughs> from the mountains, sir. <laughs> I know a way that we will get more money for the charity though. They just donate every time I die. Oh, that's very good. That's actually smarter for all of us, frankly. All right. Well, we will be putting some news out on that and how you can get involved. And until then, everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.